Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. It was, of course, Mother's Day yesterday, so I hope all you mothers out there were treated to a special day. Thanks for listening in again this week, and as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is greatly appreciated. And if you do enjoy the podcast, please spread the word on social media or with your friends and colleagues. I would appreciate that as well. Today, my guest is Dr. Yvette Jackson, author of Pedagogy of Confidence. Now, this interview runs a little bit longer than most of the interviews, but trust me, be ready to pause, reflect, rewind, take notes, and learn. She is absolutely brilliant. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about how nonverbal cues can also provide us with formative evidence to make instructional decisions. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. Yvette Jackson is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by exploring the end of the expression, with age comes what? Now, most people, of course, would finish that expression, wisdom. They would say, with age comes wisdom. And I think for the most part, I'd have to agree with them. Now, personally, I feel like I'm literally in the middle right now. I'm 53 years old. You know, I'm not 23 but I'm not 83 either. I'm at this age right now where the young see me as old and the old still see me as young or younger-ish. You know what I mean, something like that. What I find so fascinating about this expression is that everything else in our society is driven by the young or youth, right? We've been conditioned to believe that everything, absolutely everything about aging or Look, just being older is bad. I don't need to list the countless examples of that messaging. A recent kind of frivolous example that comes to mind for women, and, you know, women, it has to be said, women typically bear a disproportionate amount of this messaging. This example that comes to mind for women is this whole skinny jean side part debate. So let me get this straight. Gen Z decides that skinny jeans and side parts are out, and it elicits this almost instant reaction. Like, who who cares? Why is it so important to be seen as cool or in by the younger generations? Like, I, I know some might be thinking, you know, it's easy for you to say, Tom, you're a man, you don't have to deal with some of this stuff. But honestly, I, I really don't get it why we react so instantly. As we age, we're supposed to gain wisdom and perspective, right? Perspective. Why then, if we have perspective, when it comes to how your hair is parted, do we have this massive overcorrection by some and seek the approval of the younger generation? I'm not saying it's only women. Men are, you know, prone to this as well in other aspects. But why does that matter to us? Well, it's probably because we've been conditioned to believe that aging is bad, that all things associated with aging are not really what society wants. But newsflash, we all age every day. No one can avoid it. It's happening to all of us. Now, of course, as soon as you're seen as out of style or out of fashion, the indirect or even the direct 
shaming begins, right? So with age comes ageism. Ageism, it kind of feels like that last universally acceptable, normalized form of discrimination. I, yes, there are other far more serious forms of discrimination, but so many of them are now thoroughly unacceptable in society. Some people are still racist and sexist, but again, the level of acceptability within society could is at an all-time low. But you want to mock women for their aesthetics, their side part, or their skinny jeans? Yeah, sure, go for it. You want to make fun of men for their, their dad bods? Yeah, no worries. We got you covered. No big deal. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's only older people who believe with age comes wisdom. Admittedly, I, you know, I didn't always want to hear it when I was much younger. Older people, you know, yammering on about their experience and how they've learned from their mistakes and all of that. I know at times my attitude was, hey, dude, save it. Okay, that's you not me. Okay. I don't need to go through your experiences to gain competence. Okay. That's your story. That's not my story. But here's the thing. The older people in my life back then, they were right. I know that now. What I didn't realize then that I know now is that experience doesn't really matter when everything is copacetic. You know, whether professionally or personally, of course, some experience matters, but experience doesn't really matter that much until something unexpected happens. When you think of all the times when your experience mattered, it's usually during an unexpected personal or professional moment where drawing upon the experience and the weathering of past storms allowed balance and perspective during the current storm, right? So we say with age comes wisdom, and yet the youngest generation seem to drive the narrative within so many aspects of our society. And it's not just the frivolous areas like fashion and, and hairstyle. You think about, you know, politics, and I'm not, this is not really a political point, but it's interesting when you think about Joe Biden. Now, if you can just set politics aside, because this isn't about Democrat, Republicans, none of that. But here's someone who should at least be respected for his experience. And yet he's attacked for being too old or out of touch, not just outside the Democratic Party, but inside as well. Now, look, I get that there's a political strategy there and, and that there's a reason that they sort of try to do that for someone else's, you know, candidate or the ways that they can kind of work themselves through during the, uh, you know, the primary season and all of that. But political strategists wouldn't use that strategy if it didn't have traction. Maybe some see the with age comes wisdom expression as an act of self-preservation and, and relevance. Maybe it's the older generation saying, hey, don't forget about us. You know, we know things. Maybe some of it happens indirectly. You know, children, of course, in trying to find their identities as they grow up, they often position themselves as the antithesis of their parents. And older generations in society are just an extension of their parents. You know, after all... We were all once that younger generation telling the older generation that, you know, they're out of touch, they got it wrong, they're, they don't get it. Many who are around my age often joke, hey, millennials, get in line. You know, we Gen Xers have been fighting with baby boomers long before you were born. They're our parents. 
Now, of course, there are many cultures that truly honor older generations, and I'm not going to list them all here, but the role of elders in indigenous cultures, of course, comes to mind immediately. But, but I'm not even talking here about the elderly. I mean, that's a whole nother issue. I'm just talking about the older. Ageism is a little different because unlike so many other isms, it's unavoidable. In fact, to avoid aging would actually mean a premature passing, right? So to avoid getting older would only be the result of a negative outcome. Now, Tad Friend, who's a staff writer at The New Yorker, wrote an article back in 2017, and the article was called, Why Ageism Never Gets Old. And this particular quote from that article caught my attention. Quote, Like the racist and the sexist, the ageist rejects an other based on a perceived difference. But ageism is singular because it's directed at a group that at one point wasn't the other and at a group that the ageists will one day, if all goes well, join. The ageist, he says, insults his own future self. End quote. You see, a racist has zero chance of becoming the race of the person he or she is attacking, right? The sexist, and look, I suppose there is always a chance that a sexist man, for example, uh, becomes transgender and just goes through that process. I, I get that. But in reality, it, it's highly unlikely that the sexist man becomes a woman. If they did, of course, that's their choice. But the odds of that, I, I have no research to back this up, but the odds of it are, are pretty slim from my perspective. So it's rare that we ever become that which we are discriminating against. In most cases, we'll never become that except when we discriminate against the older. To dismiss the older generations is to dismiss that which everyone will eventually become, right? So it feels to me like the solution to this, like most things, falls in the middle, you know, on both sides. Older generations really do need to stop being so dismissive of younger generations. Yes, we have more experience. And yes, we have lived through a lot more, but we will always be older. And at some point, the younger generations become full-blown adults. You know, jokes about millennials now are sort of tired and have fallen flat because the earliest millennials turn 41 this year. They're well-established in their careers, their families, their homes, they're, they're well-established. They have, they have children who've graduated from high school. This dismissiveness with which older generations refer to those who are younger is without question part of the problem here. But the dismissiveness with which younger generations refer to those who are older is also part of the problem. The marginalizing of life experience and how it can really bring perspective to any issue, to any dilemma, that has to stop too. Now, this one may be a little bit harder to accomplish since I think some of the youthful exuberance to separate ourselves from adults and older generations to distinguish ourselves, I think some of that is primal. Now, the answer for those who are older, at least in part, is to maybe not always fan the flames by overreacting to everything the younger generation pr pronounces or proclaims. If we keep reacting, 
And more importantly, if we keep overreacting, we're just going to continue to give oxygen to some things that will invariably turn out to be wrong. A measured response is what's needed. Now, the younger generations can't solely drive the narrative, but the older generations need to be open to where progress must continue. For more serious issues like gender identity, and for more frivolous ones like side parts, <laughs> older generations need to be open to the conversation and maybe a societal reset. We know a lot. Our experience tells us that. But we don't know everything. Ageism is not okay, and it has to stop. But it takes two to tango, as the expression goes. Older generations can't just expect reverence simply because they're older. Look, you get what you give. And being older should come with balance and wisdom and perspective and a way of treating younger generations. At the same time, the whole okay boomer, that trend that was happening, maybe it's still happening, I don't know if it's still happening, that's also counterproductive. The strategy for younger generations seeking to have an authentic voice in the shape of society should not be through a full-throated disrespect toward those who came before them. That's not a good strategy either. That is only going to perpetuate, maybe even magnify the problem even more. The solution will begin when the disrespect and the dismissiveness ends. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Yvette Jackson. Uh, Yvette is an adjunct professor at Teachers College at Columbia University. She's also been a visiting lecturer at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, Stanford University, Rutgers University, and California State University at Chico. Honestly, the academic accolades are endless. Uh, Yvette is also the winner of the 2019 Global Mind Ed Inclusive Leader Award. She is the author of The Pedagogy of Confidence, which received the 2012 Forward Review's Silver Book Award, and that book, The Pedagogy of Confidence, is the reason I've primarily invited Yvette to the uh, podcast today. She is an internationally recognized uh, leader in her work in equity consciousness. She serves as a senior scholar for the National Urban Alliance for Effective Education. She works with school district superintendents, principals, leaders around the world. Uh, honestly, she's been published in a number of books and educational journals. Listeners, we would need an entire podcast to go through all of the resume. It is an impressive, impressive career. Uh, so with that, Yvette, I want to welcome you to the Tom Schimmer podcast. Thank you. And I'm going to say to the audience, I am honored to be with Tom, too, because if you're listening to this show, then you know how good he is and what his background <laughs> is as well. So this is touche and thank you. Well, I and, and I want to just be upfront with everyone to let them know that I did not pay you to say that. So I really appreciate <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's I, right. I honestly, I am thrilled to have you here through my friend and colleague, Anthony Muhammad. Uh, I was introduced to your work a number of years ago. I read The Pedagogy of Confidence and was just absolutely impressed and blown away by just so much of, of what that book has to offer for educators and even non-educators. And then when I started this podcast, I thought to myself, you know, you are definitely somebody that I wanted to have on on the podcast. So I'm just, I'm grateful that you're here and I really appreciate it. And I don't want to waste any time here. I want us to dig in because I just know how much you bring to the conversation and how much we benefit. So I want to begin with 
uh, a bit of a history lesson uh, for listeners who might be less familiar with how we've kind of ended up where we are today. You know, this disenfranchisement of urban students, uh, predominantly black and brown students, is really no systemic accident. Uh, we're, we're, you know, I'm not pointing the finger at individuals, but we've kind of created a kind of systemic inertia that has become in many ways just kind of assumed. And so those who are less familiar with that might think to themselves, oh, so, okay, so we have this system of special education and there's a process for that. And, and we have this uh, system of, you know, gifted and talented programs and there's a process for that. But as is often pointed out by yourself and others, you know, black and brown students are likely to be overrepresented in special education and white students tend to be overrepresented in gifted and talented programs. So I wonder if to begin with, you could take us inside a bit of a history lesson and some of the social underpinnings that have kind of led to where we are today with those categories in our education system. Right, sure, it's my pleasure. And, and I, I was even thinking, as I was saying, it's my pleasure when I think about the categories, it's not my pleasure to talk about them because they've been so restrictive um, but if you go back, you know, it's really interesting. The first thing I want to say is when you talk about minorities, and if I'm doing quote signs because we'll talk about that later, you know, the idea that minorities don't do as well on standardized achievement tests, then we have to really go back and say, well, why is that? It has nothing to do with their race. It has to do with what people have been introduced to, have what they've been instructed in. So what do I mean by that? So in the 1910s, the people who were considered the minorities who didn't do well on standardized achievement tests were the Irish. They came over, right? This was after the, um, the potato famine. My grandmother was Irish, she, her family came over. And because they came into this culture and were alienated from the time they got off the boat, they would go to school and the kinds of, they didn't have the regular standardized achievement tests like we have now, but there was definitely grading and, and grouping and systematizing people. And they were considered those people who didn't, wouldn't do as well. And then after that, in the 1920s, it was Eastern Europeans who are coming over into the United States. Same thing, they come into this country. And it's interesting because this country was founded by immigrants. And now these later, these new immigrants were considered the minorities. They don't do as well, they're not part of the culture. And then it was like in the 1950s that what started happening is Latino people, Hispanic people were coming up, not even so much from Mexico, but from some of the other places and they were actually being identified as the new minorities and not doing well. And then you would say, okay, well, that's interesting. I haven't heard you say African-Americans yet. You know, there right. were, well, that's because the segregation was so deep before that, that they were not even considered to need to have the file kept on, on how they were doing because of the segregation. But then what wound up happening is in the sixties, that is when you started with uh, looking at the whole idea as of the Freedom Trail, how we were really looking at Martin Luther King and what we were trying to do against segregation to break the back of segregation. But you still had segregated minds, which means that the idea of looking at a person of color and particularly 
African-Americans as a result of enslavement and how they were really considered very early on, not even to have intelligence. But now what happened because they were considered that education was kept away, right? It was, you don't need to go to school. As a matter of fact, we're gonna segregate the schools and that's where we have all of these different court cases that came up separate but equal. What does that really mean? At the same time then in the seventies, that is really where a congressman, his name was Augustus Hawkins, was one of the first congressmen to really push forward the Title I Act in the United States. And what he meant by that, and he was actually one of the mentors of the National Urban Alliance. So we knew Gus personally, and his desire with Title I was to say what I say in the book, that children have unbelievable capacity. We need to ensure that they are being given the kind of funding so they can do better in school. But this is where the rub happened. What happened was they started deciding, how are you going to disseminate the money for Title I? And the way districts were applying for it was based on looking at low academic performance. Now, Gus's idea was, yes, that just means they need more enrichment. It doesn't mean that they're less capable. But what happened was the more you could identify where there was, and they didn't use the word underachievement. I've used that word. They would say where you could identify low achievement, the more you could identify, the more money you would get for Title I. Now, what happened was some people would say, well, that's really great, except what started happening is remediation came as a result of that, not enrichment. It was remediation. That was number one. What does that mean? Doing the same thing over and over again. That's why it's called remediation, doing it over and over, which if you teach somebody a certain way and they're not getting it, say, well, I'm just going to do it again the same way. They're still not getting it. But this is the big rub. What happened was there was so much emphasis at looking at deficits that nobody started looking at strengths. The more that came about, meaning ignoring the possibility of strengths, then the inference became, well, they must not have any strengths, right? That's, we're not looking, right. all we keep identifying is where they're weak. And we know right now, you know, when I work with teachers and I, I tell the story, I said, suppose I started this session with you by saying, I want to know all the areas you don't do well in. I want to know that and for the entire sessions we're together, I'm just going to focus there. First of all, the teachers would be very turned off by me. That's number one. Number two, they would get this inferiority complex thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm not capable. And this is what started happening as a result of what Gus wanted as being a very supportive, enriching experience got really reframed and refocused mm -hmm. on the idea of deficits, which really propelled this idea of substantiating that people of color just obviously don't do well, because right. that's where for Title I, you could get the money, like I said, based on underachievement or based on poverty. Those were the two. So up oh, here we go. You put those two together and look, wow, voila. Now, Exactly at the same time, though, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the United States became competitive with Russia for the space program. 
right. space program was. And all of a sudden, the United States is saying, wait a second, we have to have people we're identifying as really highly capable giving money in that venue that we'll call these people gifted. Okay, but now what did they say? Three to five percent of a population we're going to label as gifted. Now, why that? Because they figured by giving a statistic, a range of three to five percent, then they could really hold on to how much money they really have to allocate for that. But people then interpreted that by saying, well, only three to five percent of a population then is gifted. That is totally empirically not true. They never did that kind of testing to see that at all. So then what happened was, well, what do you mean by gifted? Well, high performing and standardized achievement tests, okay. But wait, we really are trying to do this. This is what the government was saying. We're really trying to do this to perpetuate those who could make contributions to this, this dominance that we want to try to continue to have. So what wound up happening is that's when they started saying, well, wait, you could be gifted a variety of ways. You could be intellectually gifted, which would mean we're going to find that out on an IQ test. You could be academically gifted. We're going to find that out on an academic test. You could be um, uh, performing. You could be gifted in the performing arts, the performing visual arts. Okay, then we're going to, we're going to assess that based on performance. And then they had even gotten into this idea of looking at sports. You could be gifted in sports. And then all of a sudden the government was saying, wait a minute, we're spending a lot of money now on little league, on hockey teams, and we're gonna take that, all right, we can't have that as a category anymore. So you had two tracks going on then. You had the track of Title I that now the focus was on where are students not doing well in poverty? And then you have this other track that said, okay, these are the kids who are really going to be making a contribution to the world just based on test scores, which a test score cannot predict how well you do later on. As a matter of fact, a lot of people know the work of Daniel Goldman, who really talks about emotional intelligence. And he always says, like, if you're really going to talk about people who wind up being leaders in particular, whatever particular areas, these are not people who were in gifted programs or, or who were valedictorian or anything. They had these other capacities, characteristics, habits of mind that got developed. Okay, so now I started teaching in the 70s and that's why I kind of give that frame because I was watching these two things happen and I happened to teach in a title one school. I would say 95% of the children in the school, maybe 98% were kids of color. And mm -hmm. I had the great opportunity though to teach the same kids for three years, right? Yeah. So I had them in third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade. Well, I became very Piagetian of them because now I'm saying, oh my goodness, in this group of kids, I could just see the kind of gifts be identified. It was interesting because I had really been classically trained in the open school methodology, yeah. which meant a lot of centers, a lot of variety, a lot of choice. And it was that kind of pedagogy that elicited these kinds of performances on the parts of kids. And that's when I said, wait a second, these kids are truly gifted. They have been, what they've been showing, what they've been demonstrating 
has really been uh, magnificent. And so I just knew later on. So then when I went to graduate school, I say, you know what? I am going to get a degree in gifted education and I'm gonna go into it, not because I believe only three to 5% of kids are gifted. It's like, what do you do for students? What do you give them when they are labeled as gifted, right? right. One thing is they're constantly getting invitations to push the frontier of their own intelligence, literally. They're getting invitations to use strengths, which means strengths are identified. You know, they are given, and even where they might be underachieving, underdeveloped areas, because not gifted all the way around, then you say, well, those kids could get different kinds of resources and enrichment. And that's what I was looking at that and saying, this is exactly what all kids need. Wait a second. And even the defining of gifted as saying, these are the individuals who are going to make contributions. Wait a second. We are all born. We are all put here on this earth to make contributions, whatever kind of, con that's why we're here. And that was when I then decided I was going to go into that avenue of study but then I also noticed that even within the sphere of students I'm talking about, there were some kids who traditional education, just even with the approaches I was using, just wasn't really working for them the way I would like. And that was when I found my mentor, whose name was Ruben Feuerstein, who was a student of Jean Piaget. So I learned and really became entrenched in cognitive development. This is before neuroscience really had its applications in the domain of education. But Rubin's whole theory was the unlimited capacity of the brain. And he not only studied that capacity being a student of John Piaget's, but then said, well, wait a minute, what holds some students back is the idea of stress. And he literally studied students who had grown up during World War II and had been, he was a, 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 an Orthodox Jew and studied kids who had gone into concentration camps and had gone into orphanages because at the end of the war, many of these students were then being able to go to, to um, Israel at that time. It was Palestine, it was called Palestine. They were going right. to Palestine. And Reuben was the cognitive, one of the cognitive assessors of the students as they were going in. They'd be tested in Paris and then they would go to uh, Palestine. And the idea was that the system, the government wanted to see, and they didn't use this word, but they were tracking kids, like how, mm -hmm. Who could go into what track? And that was when he was saying, wait a second, these kids have been through enormous stress. They didn't have the label of PTSD then, but he was showing how that stress had really affected their cognitive ability. And then he came out with a series of assessments that literally take 20 hours over time because his whole thing was, you can't assess a child without knowing what they've been exposed to assessment should be part of the learning and teaching process. And when I read about his work, I said, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I need to involve myself into understand more the cognitive side of this, but also because it's not about remediation, it's about mediation. 
What are the kinds of things that we have to do to give students between the stimulus, the curriculum, the whatever they're learning and they're processing so they'll get it deeply. And that was how my worlds um, intersected to go to, this is what Joseph Renzulli of, of uh, University of Connecticut at Stores would say, gifted, he would talk about studying gifted people. And he basically really saw that when he looked at gifted people who had been identified as gifted, alive or dead, he found that they really had three attributes. Otherwise, that, that were the same. Otherwise, they were very different. They were all above average. They were very yeah. task committed and they were very creative. They weren't all off the spectrum on the chart of an IQ test. Anyway, yeah. so as you asked that question about what, well, what's the history, you had this Title I history going on, you had the gifted and talented. And I was saying, wait a second, I knew Gus and Gus Hawkins wanted that same kind of idea of enrichment to be given to all students. And that's yeah. where we, where I came up with this idea of the pedagogy of confidence. Yeah, it's so, uh, I just, I so appreciate the detail and the history lesson, because I think so often we sit in 2021 and we just make assumptions about the existence yeah. of certain programs and can at times gloss over the history of where they came from as being more That's noble in their good. intent, right? You, you made me think of a couple of things there. One being this flaw in first, well, let me take one step back. Nothing will otherize or marginalize a population like a label. Exactly. And, then, and then you incentivize people to label Absolutely. through funding, right? And, and all of a sudden you've got, you've got this momentum where it's really hard to, to I suppose, de-label people Absolutely. because that, that comes with a loss of funding. That is a, just a really, really important lesson for us to all in 2021, not forget that, and again, we're, we're not talking about special education in terms of those students with autism or right. uh, serious intellectual disabilities, et cetera. We, we're talking here about learning disabled or those who get labeled low, low right. achievers, et cetera. And we're gonna come back to those labels, but right. um, I think that's such an important history for all of us as educators to keep in mind that, yeah. you know, the three to 5% uh, of the population being gifted yeah. was not the intent at all. And yet here we are. Here we are so many years later. You know, right. the other thing is when we talk about labels, here we are so many years later, but words like minority, that's a mm -hmm. government label, you know, yeah. subgroup, that's a yeah. government label. And both yeah. of them mean less than. And right. so now those titles are used as a lexicon that mm -hmm. I call the lexicon of disbelief because what right. you're perpetuating is still this idea of their less than just by right. saying minority. Now, part of my family is indigenous, right? And so you say right. in the United States, wait a second, they were there before all you guys came over, you know? Right. And you're still looking at this as a less than a situation, yeah. which yeah. I'm adamant about shifting. Right, absolutely. And, and so with that shift comes the pedagogy of confidence. So let's start with uh, just the idea of uh, maybe give us a synopsis of, you know, there's the history, you, you, things kind of came together for you. And you started down this pathway. And then, you, of course, years later, you wrote the book Pedag Pedagogy of Confidence. So what is the pedagogy of confidence? What does that mean? Uh, for those who haven't read the book? What, what does that really mean for educators? Well, first of all, it means that you have the fearless expectation 
fearless, and I use that word, that all students have the in potential for high intellectual performances, not in everything, but nobody has that in everything. Einstein did not have that ability that exactly. he identified for in everything. So the idea of the pedagogy of confidence is having that fearless expectation that when students are given the kinds of enriching experiences, mediational kinds of experiences, the kind of experiences that push them to endeavor to work on the development of strengths and interests, because uh, and a strength has to start as an interest, which means it's about identifying those interests, cultivating those interests, and then getting to the point that students are demonstrating what it is that they really are gifted in. The other side of pedagogy of confidence, though, is what I call, well, what do you gift students with? What is the thing that we give them, that education that's usually associated with gifted programs? That was what we were talking about earlier, that in a pedagogy of confidence, that is what you give everybody. The idea of starting with their strengths, the idea of, of looking at relationship building, focusing on a high intellectual performance instead of just literacy, you know, because mm -hmm. literacy is like a code in a very wealthy area. They don't say we focus on literacy. That's right. like, are you kidding? If that's what you were presenting to the board, that you're, they would say, what? You've got to be talking about intellectual development here, right? And so mm -hmm. in a pedagogy of confidence, you know that what when you are providing those kinds of experiences, including having students be mindful, being able to be reflective, being able to connect their strengths and their cultural frames of references to learning experiences, you're going to see incredible growth. And that is now when kids are growing like that, then we become more confident as the teachers. We go, wow, they really are capable. That's what happened to me. I said, gee, it's not so much I felt like I'm a good teacher. I just felt like I have the keys to unlocking what this innate potential is. Maybe I don't have all the keys, but that was how I pursued going through more and more studies. So in a pedagogy of confidence, it is that belief. Now that's really important because belief to have belief in the capacity of students, teachers have to also have a belief in their own ability to unlock that capacity. Mm -hmm. And many teachers, because some students don't do well, they think mm, maybe it's my inability or they think, you know what, it can't be me, it's gotta be them, it's gotta be them. And in a pedagogy of confidence, it's, you know, what do we do to really engage kids so that we can elicit that kind of the, the thing that we are wired for and, mm -hmm. and make that contribution. So that's what a pedagogy. And the, the other thing I want to say about that is when people ask me about equity, well, how do you define equity? And first of all, I say equity consciousness, because usually when people talk about equity, they're talking about policies. They're talking mm -hmm. about making sure that maybe we've opened up the gifted programs to more kids or advanced placement. No, see, equity consciousness is what do I have to be intentionally conscious about 
and pay attention to so I can really do this building, gifting our students with the kinds of strategies, opportunities, activities that are going to really inspire. See, that's a word. How come we don't hear that word across education? Kids getting inspired. And so a friend of mine and I, we wrote a book called, um, we use AIM, like Affirmation, Inspiration, and Mediation. So it's called AIM High, but the point is, that's what we're saying here. The other thing, going back to equity, is that when people ask me to define what are you talking about in terms of the consciousness, I use gifted education as the um, metaphor, the metaphor for equity consciousness, because everything I described earlier that we usually attribute to the kind of education we give to those labeled as gifted is exactly what equity consciousness is, except we are also intentionally being attentive to what are the barriers that could be holding back that potential for manifesting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's interesting because you talk in the book about motivation and yeah. connecting the idea. So early on in the book, I'm going to quote you here. You write, quote, student motivation to learn is directly affected by teachers' confidence in their students' potential, right? right. And it's, it's also about their own competence to nurture that potential. And you were just talking about that. So it's interesting to me because I think that first part of the quote really does contradict some of the common narratives around motivation, which is that, you know, it's up to the student to be motivated. It's internally sourced, it's intrinsic, all of that. Uh, and it's up to the student. So how do we know that? Like, maybe talk a little bit about the connection between a, a teacher's belief in their students to be successful and what that does as far as motivation is concerned. Right. Well, first, you know, the brain, what the brain seeks, there are four things that, well, five things the brain really seeks. The brain wants to be awakened. It really wants to be opened up and awakened, and it wants to be engaged. I mean, from the time you are born and you are placed in a crib, why do parents put those mobiles on? Mm -hmm. Because the kid is lying there and looking up to be engaged. That's what they're, otherwise they'd just be lying there. And if a child, if you find a child as a baby just lying there, still not looking around, you know there's something that's wrong. You know you've got to then see what kind of neurological issue, whatever kind of physiological issue, because babies are all over the place because we're wired to be motivated, but that is because the brain feels it needs to be engaged though. It's looking for engagement. So when teachers say to me, well, you don't understand or just some kids who are not motivated, I say, okay, so tell me about your engagement. What do you do when you're planning your lessons, when you're planning your pedagogy, tell me how you set up the engagement part. And so sometimes they'll say, well, what do you mean? I said, you tell me what I mean. Okay. <laughs> what engages you? What engages you? So the brain is looking for, often it's looking for those things that are culturally relevant. And that just means culture is not race. Culture is those things that are meaningful and relevant. Maybe it's those things that really spark my interest. They're those things that want me to be challenged because I said there are five things the brain wants to be awakened. The brain wants engagement. It's searching for engagement. It wants to be challenged. That's why as soon as a baby gets out of a crib and is crawling, you better plug in all the outlets in that yeah. house. 
You better make sure nothing is hanging off the side of a table. Why? Because the brain's looking for the challenge. Ooh, there's an outlet there. Let me see what I can stick. I stuck, stuck wood in there. Nothing happened. Let me try the next thing. Let's see what happens. The brain is like that. But then the two other things that the brain wants, it wants to be able to reflect. It wants to think back on the experience that it's having because that exercises the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which that amps up the ability to meet a challenge, right? That's it. And the other thing, the brain's always looking for feedback. It wants feedback. So those five things that I told you are exactly the five elements that computer games are made on. That's the ingredients for a computer. What do I do to wake up the person who bought it? What's the engaging part? How do I challenge them? How do I give them immediate feedback and then allow them to use that feedback to reflect on to go to the next move that's how we should be setting up our pedagogy in a class what are we going to do to engage them how do we wake them up to begin with and it goes on through everything that i just shared with you so when we say well where's the motivation i've got to say where's the engagement tell me about the engagement so you know there are many principals that talk to me now about with Certain first, they were talking to me about what do you do to virtually teach, right? Because when COVID hit, we went through this. So, how do you still get engagement virtually? That was one. But now they're saying, now that we're going back to school, they're watching instruction, the principals, and they're saying teachers have felt the need to be restrictive in what they were doing just because of the technology, the lack of being close to. And, and so I'm bringing that up because now they'll say, so what should we be doing? And I said, well, wait a second. You know, one of the things, this is an opportunity for a teacher to say, what am I personally passionate about? What is Yvette, if I'm the teacher, what am I personally passionate about? How do I take what I'm personally passionate about, find the concepts that kids have to learn within my syllabus, make a connection between what I'm passionate about and those concepts, the lexicon of the thing I'm passionate about, the skills that have to be used, the kinds of applications that are used, and start designing lessons right now as we're making this transition through COVID, after COVID, to this. This is this is what I was coining today. This is a renaissance period. This could be a renaissance moving from COVID to really thinking very differently about how we do teaching starting with teachers' passions and strengths. Because what happens when a child knows that you're really interested in something, that you love it, it's contagious. They feel the energy and they know when you don't like something. They, they know, they can feel the energy. And so it's also modeling to them when they see what you're passionate about, what you went through, you're answering the questions. How'd you get good at that? These are the steps that I had to take. And usually they're the same steps. Somebody exposed me to something. I got interested in it. I decided to try it again and again because I was interested. Then I became innovative, whether it's skiing, cooking, whatever it happens to be, learning. So what I'm saying is right now, if teachers are motivated themselves to put together those kinds of lessons, then kids pick up. They're engaged, they pick up and they will jump into it. So to say again that kids, some kids aren't motivated, I have to ask what's the engagement you're setting for? How do you connect to a child's cultural frame of reference? 
how do you know when a child, what a child is, finds personally meaningful and relevant? Just right. because you're looking at me and you see a person of color, you have no idea what my cultural frame of reference is. You, you don't right. know. You've got to really ask what are those things that are meaningful and relevant. Mm -hmm. And then the teacher makes intentional the explicit connections or the opportunities for students to make those connections to those things in their cultural frame to the conceptual part of what's supposed to be taught. Yeah, it, um, it makes me wonder why so many educators lack the confidence in themselves. I, I, I think it's safe to assert that most, yeah. the vast majority of teachers go into the profession with this burning desire to make a difference, right? They wanna make a difference. Right. Um, they, 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 they have this burning desire to really have an impact, not just a minor difference. They want right. to make a big impact on Absolutely. students, but exactly. at some point educators end up just, they just don't feel like they don't feel confident in themselves. So where do you think that comes from? What, where does, where does that sort of get taken away from all of us where we, we come into the profession and we're going to make a difference in the lives of the students we teach and, right. and become this, this leader and create these kinds of cultures. And then at some point, we just don't believe we can do it anymore. And we just lack right. that confidence. Where do you think that comes from? There's so many places. One is their own personal experience. Sometimes they go into teaching really, like you were saying, committed to doing it, but then they all go into a very, um, restricted regiment way that teaching is supposed to be done, whether it's at the middle school, the high school, this is the way we do teaching here, right? And it's very narrow in its format. Now, what winds up happening when it's narrow and you can't start with kids' strengths, you can't talk about it and begin every lesson by watching a video, maybe on um, something on electronic field trips, some, you know, we're not supposed to do that because we have these specific, not only the curriculum, but the textbook. And we're supposed to be following the guide to that textbook, which is very restrictive. It's like a couple of people got in a room and thought of the way that they want to introduce, but they don't know the kids who are being taught. And so for me as a teacher, if I'm supposed to be into what and i'm in a school that they use pacing guides that literally say you start here this is the next step this is the next step that is so restrictive that it first of all it, it limits my creativity but here's the here's the bad rub what happens is when you're in a restricted curriculum like that the kids don't respond well they're not doing well they're not interested or they don't then test well then it looks like, wow, so it's either me or it's them. And often I'd rather sometimes teachers say it must be them because I'm also led to believe I'm supposed to look at the data and the data says they don't do well, or it's me because I'm in this restricted lane that I'm supposed to be in. And, you know, in the book, I use this analogy to swans. I remember watching swans in England and just saying, oh, my goodness, they are so majestic in the water. And then as soon as they get out of the water to try to get food from those who are watching, they are ambling and they're falling all over the yeah. place. Why? Because they're out of their element. As soon as you put them back in that element where they can flourish, where they connect, where they can glide along, that's what happens with so many children and so many teachers. 
They're not in, allowed to be in their element. Those creative ideas that they had when they were student teachers, all of a sudden get very restricted. So what does that mean? The other side of it is, what about when you are, you watch some teachers getting chosen to be teachers of the gifted? They're gonna be in the gifted program. Then it looks like, well, maybe they're really better teachers than I am. And that's not necessarily true. It could be true. But the cool thing then about gifted land is me going into being a teacher there. I get to try out a lot of different things, right? I get to start with their strengths and move with other kind of um, enrichment. And yeah, what happens? The kids keep doing well. The kids keep doing well while the other kids are in this restricted diet of remediation or just not being able to explore conceptually, you know, or or even getting into the backward planning. Like I know, you know, Jay McTie and thinking about those essential questions that can really open the mind up of kids. And that's why teachers then feel, well, maybe it's me. So here we go. If you then think about, well, think about when you are successful, what really happens in those situations? Use your own empirical research. What made you successful with ex kids? Was it what kinds of things were you doing with them? You know, and then you start saying, well, wait, when I do them, I do see kids shift into this mode of being motivated. And I feel better than about myself when I say, okay, I must have really turned it on. So when I wrote Pedagogy of Confidence, it was interesting because people said, well, whose confidence are you talking about? I said, I'm talking about the teachers, talking about the kids, and I'm talking about the leaders in the school, the administrators. What about their confidence? When they're told, wait, wait, wait a second, your school, all the kids aren't doing X, Y, Z. And then what about, you were talking earlier about labels. When you start labeling schools and all these districts have labels for the underperforming schools, you know, and they're always these derogatory labels, then what happens? And I'm a teacher in that school. I don't feel very good. Even if it's on a subconscious basis, it looks like if I'm part of this crew at the school, we must not be good. So there are all these different dimensions, facets to why, which is why I said this has got to be called pedagogy of confidence. You know, the other thing is many, many years ago, I, I saw um, pedagogy of the oppressed, you know, pedagogy of the, mm-hmm. uh, the book, pedagogy of the oppressed and Paolo Freire's book. And I remember hearing pa- Paolo Freire and he was talking about that, but then he went from, his second book after Pedagogy of the Oppressed was called Pedagogy of Hope. And I heard him talking and I remember saying, you know, but you got to have more than hope. It's like for teachers have to have a sense of confidence in terms of, yes, you, there's a, a biological construct to hope that's very powerful, but you've got to be in the other lane. You've got to be really confident about this to move on. And that was really the genesis of the title to say, this is where we have to operate from. And if we provide these kinds of experiences, the feedback that the students are going to be giving to us about our pedagogical choices will enhance our confidence. Yeah, it's, um, you talked about labels and terminology. It's, and you talk about teachers at times feeling as if they, they don't 
they can't make a difference or it, it, it must right. be them. And then right. what that ends up leading to are some of the, the terms, as you mentioned, the, the labels that we throw around. Right. I, I'm actually struck by, you know, the number of, of labels or euphemisms Absolutely. that are used right. in, our, in our system, words like uh, urban. Right. Uh, inner exactly. inner city, uh, low achiever, uh, free and reduced lunch is the one that I get a lot oh, when I absolutely when I meet people and we're talking about uh, setting up a professional learning experience and they they tell me about their school. It's one of the first things they tell me is uh, here's the percentage of students that are on free and reduced exactly. lunch. And, and for some of them, I can tell that it's it's almost a way for them to say, hey, Tom, you know, keep your expectations exactly. you know, under wraps because you got to understand what we're dealing with, right? right. So, so right. here's my question to you about those labels. How do we break this habit of this coded language? How do, we, how do we get away from marginalizing and otherizing students through these labels? And, and how do we bring ourselves back into taking some responsibility for the results as opposed to staying at arm's length and saying, well, they're they're low achievers, they're free and reduced lunch. What do you expect us to do? How do we break that, that habit or that cycle? Well, the first thing is we must do much more around the science of learning. We need to learn more about the learning process, not just when we're in undergraduate school, because we keep finding out more and more about the science, the neuroscience, the intersection of the neuroscience and the cognitive science around learning. And I believe that the more people really understand how the brain operates in the learning process, the more then you really will see where those labels don't hold true because what we're learning about how the brain functions, why the brain needs enrichment, what happens when the brain has access to enrichment, everybody's brain, that's one thing. So if we were told, so listen to this, suppose government started saying, we're going to be funding your school district based on the amount of strengths that you find in children, in, in their strengths, what you find as strengths. All of a sudden, what would happen? There would be a shift and people would start saying, wait, wait, how do I, we identify the strengths? What would be the best way to show those strengths? How we, because all of a sudden, the focus. So that's the beginning of starting to break down the use of those other kinds of labels, because now we're going to have an assets focus, which means we've right. got to start using terminology that's assets focused, right? That's, right? that's going to be the first thing. The second thing is when we, the more we learn about the brain, we will understand that between out behind my exterior color, you and I have the exact same color brain. Right. Brains are all gray. It's brain matter, right? It's gray matter. Now, if that's the case, and we all have the, our brains are, are colored, the propensity of our brains is the same. How they develop is different because of whatever experiences we have. But even Jean Piaget was the one who said, and look, if you want high level performance, you need high level activities. You use low level activities, that's, the, that's what you're going to get mm -hmm. because the task precedes the performance. It is really looking at how we put that test. So when you moving away from labels means what is it that we're really trying to, first of all, what's our belief? 
in the capacity of the brain. If we really believe this, then uh, our whole philosophy and the language we use really has to shift. It's got to shift to match that philosophy. And that's why I start always by saying, if we were getting money for doing that, all of a sudden the labels would really shift fast. You You would really see that. And then the things that otherwise kids would become this extinct. It would really be more around what do we do to engage kids so we can identify more of those strengths and abilities. And that's the kind of shift that we're trying to push through, even why I use the idea of the metaphor of gifted education for equity consciousness, because then if you're focused on really thriving, flourishing in the gifts, even those things that are barriers you'll still look for because you want to ensure that we are accessing and turning on that brain. But that's the beginning. You got to understand more about the brain. If you understood, you would understand why culture is so much, so important. It's not because, because culture is not race, right? So culture is really about experiences and those things that I said earlier that are meaningful and relevant and those experiences set up particular neural patterns that when you are then using those patterns, you really see a a very much more expressive demonstrative side to the propensity of the brain, which is why when we talk about culturally relevant teaching, it isn't about, oh, because we have these kids of color. Because Lev Vygotsky was the first one to really talk about the impact of culture on learning. And he, you know, when you talk about culture, language, and cognition, he was the first one to say that culture and language are what come together to help a person express him or herself in the world through their cognitive intellectual abilities. And um, so it is that culture that really helps turn on the performance of kids when you make those links. Yeah, you 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 write so eloquently about that in the book. You talk about relevance and meaningfulness are contextualized and influenced by one's culture, and that culture creates this emotionally laden frame of reference uh, that we all construct meaning through, right? So this is how how you visualize that through culture and language is how how meaning is constructed. So can we dig a little bit deeper on that? Just talking about that interconnectedness between culture, language, and cognition, and and really the influence that culture and language have, and it being different, as you say, than than race, and how, how culture influences our thinking. Right. Well, first of all, culture molds language. The language that you use to express yourself are based on the culture that has really affected your cognition, how you make meaning, the way you put ideas together, the way you infer, the way that you even sequence often is very much affected by your culture, what you think is most important, meaningful, and valuable. So that's what's going on. And like I said, culture, when you think about, well, what really is culture? Well, we know it's what's meaningful and relevant, but we also know that culture is displayed through rituals, through traditions, and rituals and traditions are repeated patterns. That's what they, that's why they call that. We do them over. And so what happens when you are dealing through traditions and ritual is 
as I was saying a little while ago, you are creating specific neural patterns that come through certain kinds of repetition and certain kinds of appreciation. One culture, one group of people may appreciate baseball dramatically, you know, and then there are others, other cultures who sports aren't that important. There are other things that they see as important references. And then what happens is there's language that then is used to express the cognition, the meaning that you're making. And that's why culture is affecting the language. But the reverse is true as well, that language can affect culture. So what do I mean? Here's an example in the education parlance. So all of those terminology that we use like minority, like disabled, like disadvantaged, they are language that put a specific cultural implication at work. Once that language happens and is used repeatedly, there's a culture that takes place. That's right. why we have a culture of looking at low performance and just assuming that that means that these are kids who are in the, the gap. So that's, you know, so that's where language then affects culture, meaning the pattern, the way people are looked at, the way we choose or don't choose particular strategies, all came and got started because of the language. So I remember I got a letter, uh, uh, an email last year from a particular state in the country, because it was the state ed department. And they said, um, you know, Dr. Jackson, we've read a lot about your work. And we have a lot of kids who are in the subgroup and we would love for you to come. We think that you could have something to contribute, especially when it comes to subgroups and kids of color. And I am telling you, I read that and I said, all right. First, my first thought was I'm not going to this place mm -hmm. because there was such a comfort in even coming to me and saying subgroup. Now, why? That's what we talked about earlier. It's a federal term. It's a term, right? right? But it still has an implication. There's a meaning behind that. So I wrote them back and I said, you know, let me tell you my philosophy. And I told them all this pedagogy of confidence, all kids yeah. are really wired. And I said, I just have to say that if I come, uh, the first thing I'm going to do is talk about these labels like subgroup, minority, oh, marginalization, that kind of thing. And I'm going to say that we don't use that language and why that's important. Anyway, make a long story. I said, now, based on the fact that I've shared my philosophy, if you're still interested in having me come, we can talk. Well, I never heard from them again. But my point is that the language was used with such comfort and yeah. ease that sets and shows a particular cultural reference. And that's why I said culture is not race but how people look at race is very cultural, right? And so yeah. when you talk about that in terms of the impact of culture on cognition, it's what the brain is hearing, how it's making the meaning. That is why even very young kids, they get into this idea of what's called, Carol Dweck talked about the entity theory where so many kids believe intelligence is fixed. Like I, I just don't have it. You know, I just am not right. smart as the other or they're very much familiar with the idea of um, attributional references where they're saying, well, my ability 
to success or fail is based on. And it's whatever they've been trained to believe. It's based on my color. It's based on where I grew up. It's based on the fact that I just don't know. You know, that is, that's the kind of thinking that comes from the culture, the language that that affects a cultural pattern, then that is going to affect my cognition and how I'm thinking and making meaning and even seeing myself, my identity. So that is really that intersection on the other side right. of that. So how do you use culture and teaching? Well, when we start conceptually, as I mentioned earlier, big ideas, not topics, but in other words, saying to teachers, what do you want kids to really understand, students to understand at this the end of this lesson with the big concept, the broader the concept, the more connection students can make, regardless of where they're from, what they've been exposed to, the more narrow the concept where it's a topic. So by choosing very broad topics and then saying to kids, what do you know about this? Like even whether it's migration, whether it's looking at it in terms of change, whether it's measurement, Kids at four and five year old, can, they can tell you about measuring things, even though they may be totally off on inches or something, but they understand this is what you do to make something fit, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the idea here is by getting a cultural reference, knowing more about what kids already are thinking about this, what they've been exposed to, I can then use many more connections to going further in the teaching of that concept. So they get it. So when yeah. kids say to a teacher, I don't get it. They're not kidding. They just don't get it. It's like conceptually, right. you gotta, you gotta connect me. It has to be contextualized more. And that's what Vygotsky was talking about when he talked about the zone of proximal development. Right. It's like, how do I bring this closer to my sense of experience? Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I love the reference in the book to uh, the new hip hop. Um, oh, right. Love that. Uh, high intellectual performance through high operational practices. Yeah. And so as we finish up here, uh, I've got a couple more questions for you. Uh, those high operational practices. So we've got identifying and activating students' strengths, building relationships, eliciting high intellectual performance, providing enrichment, integrating prerequisites for academic learning, situating learning in the lives of students, and amplifying student voice. So my question to you is, okay, so a teacher is ready to sort of rethink and, and you know, reimagine what their classroom could look like. Right. Uh, where do they start? What, what, with those seven practices, is there a most efficient and effective place to begin or is it always context dependent? Uh, you no. know, where, where, where should a teacher begin? Well, first I always say begin with strengths because that's the place people don't usually start, right? right. They're starting thinking more about it in terms of, where do I start based on this curriculum? That where do I start? And I'm saying, first of all, you have to really identify and understand student strengths. Now, okay. how do we identify the strengths? Well, this is where it gets curriculum oriented. First, we can ask kids about their strengths, right? What do you mm -hmm. think you're really good at? Problem with that though, is there are so many children. So I will tell you, I was teaching, I was uh, doing some co-teaching. This was just a couple of years ago in a middle school in, um, in a very urban area. And my partner, the woman I was working with, what our goal was to have teachers and students come together 
for pedagogy, meaning for professional development. Teachers and students were going to be in professional development sessions together. Why? When we talked about learning and the brain and how the learning happens, why shouldn't kids know how the brain works too? I mean, we, we teach them about all these other things, even right. supposed to get into biology. And we mentioned the brain, we mentioned the parts of the brain, what it does, but we don't talk about how learning really happens. And the mm -hmm. more kids understand about how learning happens, the more than they can be self-determined for what can I do to make my learning stronger? So that's the other thing about, we were in this situation, we were going to be getting kids ready. I worked with, it was two days in a row that we were going to be with these middle school kids about 24. I worked with the kids on the first day, my partner's working with the teacher. The second day we're bringing students and teachers together to learn more about. And literally kids learned the term pedagogy, what pedagogy meant, what goes into a good lesson, what can students and teachers do together to design a lesson. Kids can tell teachers what engages other kids. They can say where the best kind of priming activity could be. But here we go back to the, where do you start? Yeah. So the, the day, the second day I was with the kids before we went to meet with the teachers, I said, you know, I'd like you to identify what you, your strengths are. I'm sharing this because I said, ask them what their strengths are. 24 mm -hmm. kids in the class, 22, 21 of them, I asked them to do a bubble map. That's a David Hiley's thinking maps. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to put their 21 kids had nothing in their bubbles. 21. Now, why? Because they never, ever, one, they were never asked that. They were never asked to consider their strengths. Second, because they were never asked, they didn't think they had any strengths. So this is what wound up happening. And this is, I, again, I'm saying this because when we say, where do you start? I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to go around the room to all 24 of you, and I am going to give you a strength that I know is coming from you. And I've only been with you one full day because I was with you. All right. So I go around it. Now, first of all, as I'm going around, you should have seen their body language. Everybody is sitting up because they know it's going to be good. I said, I'm going to bring you a strength. I didn't. So, you know, I could have said the opposite. I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong. All right. <laughs> I'm telling them that. So this one child, I tell her, her name is Tasha. You're really a very responsible person. So I go around the room. Now, what winds up happening is in five minutes, I ask them to now share their bubble maps. You should have seen, it was an explosion on the right. paper. They were coming up with everything from competitive to mature to artistic. I mean, they were going, I have a good humor, whatever mm -hmm. it is. But you see, that's not enough. When you're doing that kind of identification, it has to be for a purpose too. How are you mm -hmm. going to use your strengths? How are you going to develop your strengths? what how did you develop the strength to begin with but i want to just share this i said i might share something with you so at the end this is very short i asked the kids okay i want you to write how you're going to use your strengths to be a leader so this is that one child who i said was responsible she says my strengths can help me to be a leader because when i was little i was shy and very quiet but as i grow older i gain some strengths these six strengths are athletic competitive, mature, respond, 
principle, which she underscores. Remember, this is the one I gave her. Intelligent. They're going to help me grow as a person because as a basketball player, you need discipline. You need to be competitive and mainly you have to be mature. They have helped me as a leader because I share these things with my friends, teachers, and family members. I give them great advice. And as a leader, you have to make sure that you lead other people to being a leader someday. Now, I share that with you because first of all, we're talking social emotional learning. We're talking about attentiveness. We're talking about attributional theory. We're talking mm -hmm. about all this. Now though, pedagogically, how do you identify strength? That's why when I was talking to you about starting with broad concepts, as you're working on your lesson development, you say, what am I going to use? There are three facets, priming, processing, and retaining for master or for understanding. So in each element, each section of this planning, we have to constantly be saying, how do we learn more about the strengths within those kids? In the priming, I'm introducing whatever the big concept is. And I start identifying and asking kids, one, what they already know about it. Why do they know it? What kinds of experiences? Give me some examples of it. And you will be surprised. We don't know what kids know until we really ask them. And so many kids have had all kinds of experiences outside of school that have really influenced not only their, their knowledge, but where they really happen to be strong. So when I'm working with teachers and we're talking about identifying strengths, it really is what is the kind of opportunity in the learning process where I can assess where they're really developing, what they're showing some real amplitude. So that's mm -hmm. why I start with strengths. The other one though is situating learning in the lives of students. When mm -hmm. we make those connections between the realities you know, kids love, really love current events, not the mm -hmm. old way where you say, okay, but really what's happening in the world? What if, right. what if you heard? Let's talk, especially now with COVID, with all of these things, with using the media, that kind of thing. But when you're doing that and you're starting there, you also think about prerequisites. What, mm -hmm. what are the prerequisites I should be exposing kids to? So when I'm priming them, they can be very strong. How are they connected? How do I integrate in the processing high level strategies that get to higher order thinking? How do I get them into more critical analysis, more comparative behavior, more uh, evaluation and critique? Those are high levels of, and if the kids, as I'm introducing them and using these kind of strategies that elicit that, I'm really demonstrating or, or getting to identify where kids are strong. So when you say, where do you start? It really doesn't matter where you start, but I start with strengths, like I said, for the reasons that I already shared. Yeah. But the one area that really pushes forward as I close there is this idea of, of a student voice, right? right? Amplifying student voice. So that experience where I told you that I was in this city where we were then having teachers and students come together for professional development, that is a strong example of amplifying the voice of students. So what kind of things happen as a result of students and teachers learning together? Language changes. This is back to language and culture. What do I mean? They started using neurotransmitters, neurogenesis, the idea of a pedagogical practice, the idea of wait time, attentiveness, 
all this language that they were learning together became a new shared language, which mm -hmm. then was the result of an, a, a new culture. And that's where we get into this idea of the impact of giving kids voice in terms of their kinds of experiences. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I think your, uh, <clears throat> your point about beginning with strengths is yeah. really critical. I, I think that just centers everything around unlocking for students right. their internal belief about I have strengths, exactly. here's exactly. what they are, exactly. here's, here's how I capitalize on them, right? Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. Listeners, yeah. the uh, the book is Pedagogy of Confidence. Uh, it is a must read as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so so if you haven't read the book yet, please, I, I would encourage you to really get the book and just consume every every ounce of it. It is, uh, it is for me, required reading uh, yeah. for any educator. Now, before we pivot here uh, to maybe having a little bit of a lighter conversation, yeah. Yvette, Yvette, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the National Urban Alliance for Effective Education. Sure. Tell us a little bit about that organization. Sure. The National Urban Alliance really started as a, as a partnership with Teachers College at Columbia University, Simon & Schuster, and a couple of other partners where the idea, and this was in the 80s is when it started, the idea was how do we work with school districts to move away from a deficit model to really think about how we get to learn about learning and thinking at high levels and to use that as a way, especially to kind of counter the negative or deficit narrative. And so the president of Teachers College, like I said, Simon Schuster, these people got together, Gus Hawkins, that I, whom I talked about earlier, got together and said, well, what then becomes our focus? You know, the idea of focusing on thinking, high levels of thinking really became its major focus at that point. And then again, what would happen is we would say, well, how do you really ensure that we can change this deficit? It has to be through professional learning. So the, the guide, or I would say the goal of the National Urban Alliance was then high levels of professional learning experiences with applications back into the classroom that then centered focus on high levels of thinking. So being, again, very Piagetian, being my teachers, being a, a, you know, an intricate player in this work became the work of the National Urban Alliance. And then what wound up happening is um, it was really interesting because uh, when George Bush, the second George Bush, became the president, he really came up with this no child left behind policy, was, which was really another iteration of Title I, and it still looked at deficits. And we became very strong then as an entity because districts started reaching out and saying, well, wait a minute, how do we then look at the idea of focusing on thinking so that we can move students at more of an accelerated rate. And that is when the National Urban Alliance really blossomed to this entity that was working in many states with this real focus on mediation, what we do to really constantly assess high levels of thinking during the learning and teaching process, and even saying learning and teaching and not teaching and learning 
which mm -hmm. meant that the emphasis would also be how do we frame our work in the whole idea of, of especially cognitive science at that time, because we were talking about thinking itself, but then moving it into substantiation with the, the neuroscience. So National Urban Alliance is still very much alive and well, and uh, so much of its work now also is using this idea of um, equity consciousness to still push forward the way I described the, um, the goal, the mission of the organization. So I have remained on as a senior scholar. I was the CEO and then became the senior scholar when I also decided to do a lot more teaching at, at the higher ed level, being at Columbia, which gave just different kind of purview. But I can tell you that I, I still work with them. It still gives me access to working with teachers in the classroom to students, the work that they're doing. And when we talk about student voice and having students really be part of the professional learning is a big thrust of the National Urban Alliance. And the work is, is really um, amazing. So if you ever go on the website, you'll see examples. You'll see the Tasha that I was talking about, a lot of examples of strategies to be used and um, just uh, amazing um, pedagogical connections that uh, they're able to still pull forward. I, this has been an incredibly informative and inspiring conversation. And I feel like we have just scratched the We're surface. Started. Yeah, we're not <laughs> going to interview you next on your own well, show. That's going to be my job. <laughs> no, I think, I think I'm going to use that as an excuse to have you back at some point, because uh, I feel yeah, like there are great ways for us to dig even deeper and really explore some of these concepts uh, at, a, at a more intimate level. Um, I could, I could, I could listen to you all day. That's for uh, sure. So we're going to, we're going to pivot to a little bit of fun here. And I've got one final question as well. So as listeners know, I always finish up every interview with a segment called three questions, which are some okay. very lighthearted kind of easy kinds of questions that uh, a chance for people to get to know you a little bit on a personal level, nothing too intrusive, but just a chance okay. for us to lighten the conversation a little okay. bit as we go. So I am going to begin with the first question. And the first question is, uh, sweet or savory are you a sweet person do you have a sweet tooth or do you are you more drawn to the savory see i love chocolate so i <laughs> but but i'm really more into savory i okay. love savory i love spicy food i love the, ah. the food uh, i think some of that is from my very mixed heritage of bringing okay. those kinds of varied spices together but yeah. i'm savory you're a savory okay yeah. second one uh are you a morning person or a night owl Definitely morning. I'm like 5.36 in the morning. I just naturally get up. It's a much quieter time for me. And in the evening, yeah. I'm exhausted. So I'm yeah. definitely, I'm the a.m. person. Yeah, I've always been a morning person as well for a long time. And of course, living on the West Coast, right. so much so much happens earlier in the morning that you yeah, end up having to be up earlier. That's for sure. That's good point. All right. The, uh, the third one is if you were forced to, um, and, and both of these would be full throttle, if you were okay. forced to, which would you rather be forced to do? To sing along to every song you heard or... <laughs> to dance to every song you heard which one would you rather be forced to do and be dancing 
dancing. I, uh, I love, I really, I mean, I wanted to be a dancer. So I okay. love dancing. And if you heard my voice, my mother's words were not a good idea. Not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. I, I do not sing, but I do love dance. Love to dance. So, so you say you wanted to be a dancer. Is there dance yeah. in your background? Were you a dancer when you were young? Did you I, dance? I one of I did. I studied dance when I was very little. I mean, seriously, dancing. And then I stopped. I when I got went to graduate school, I took dance again at Columbia as a matter okay. of but I was teaching, I would teach dance as an extracurricular in the school that okay. I taught at. I was like in charge of the dance program at the school. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then when I got a little bit older, I studied at the Alvin Ailey School, which is a very yeah big dance school so but I never ever got to really be the dancer yeah. my uh my daughter was a dancer and we did oh, really? one yeah just in her younger days she's okay. more uh, an, an actor now and more in the, okay. the world of fashion wow. but it's interesting Ooh. it's interesting you mentioned um Alvin Ailey because we yes. we uh, her dance studio took a trip to New York one year wow. and they took they took some training at the Alvin Ailey uh, oh, studio yeah amazing. really really great yeah. So as we finish up, I have a question I ask all interviewees. I, I ask this question of everyone, uh, and that is about uh, your definition of success and happiness. It's a theme I'm running through the podcast. And so my question really is, you know, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? What's what's your version of my what success of, is? My definition of success is happiness. In mm if a person is really a happy, considered, considers themselves a happy person, then they've been very successful in, in many, many areas, whether it's, it's mm -hmm. both professionally at home, with the family, with extracurricular activities, they, they do the things that they're passionate about, which then makes them feel this sense of happiness, mm -hmm. which you gotta be in a, a certain, um, frame of mind and and have had the kind of opportunities that have allowed you to pursue those things that you love so that you are happy which to me then is i've i've been successful so it's mm -hmm. not quantitative it, it really is more about have i been able to do the things that really turn me on and across the areas then i can say and i am i am a really happy person. And I think that um, that is something that uh, was what I shared with my students when I had my own kids in schools. And I try to share in, in, in districts because I'm very turned on by, yeah. by this. Yeah. So that's it's it. so happy. You, you got to be successful. Yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting how so many just look at it's not about the accolades, it's not about the awards, it's not about the money, right. it's that internal sense of happiness and and uh, con contentment or satisfaction or right. however you want to call it. Right. It really does make a difference. So, Absolutely. This uh, really, uh, honestly, this has been uh, just a tremendous pleasure for me. Um, now, Yvette, you are not you are not really uh, active on social media, so I'm wondering if you could let listeners know if they want to follow your work. What's the best way to sort of follow you, or the best way to get in touch with you if they're interested in having you work with their school or their district or or what have you? What's the best way to follow you? Well, I. And you're right. I was going to say I could give you my Instagram address, but you're right. I, I rarely <laughs> post 
really close, but really you could go to the National Urban Alliance website okay. because anything that I'm either writing or actively engaged in, they, they really do post on, mm -hmm. on the website. And then you'd also find some other very interesting, wonderful things, but that's the best way to see what I'm doing. To get in touch with me, you can either go through that email website also, right. or you can go through the Teachers College website, which is where it's yfj1 at uh, not Teachers College at ColumbiaUniversity.org. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Listeners, I'll make sure. Uh, I'll make yeah, sure. Yeah, he'll get it right. You can yeah, see that off the either. That's right. That's right. I'll I'll put the uh, email address in the show notes so listeners, you can you can take a look at there. Uh, and the National Urban Alliance for Effective Education website. That's www.nuatc.org uh, to ch to check out Yvette's work there. Uh, Yvette, this was truly an honor to have you on the podcast, and uh, I really look forward to next time. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Assessment Corner this week is going to be a quick one. Uh, I want to be mindful of your time, and you know that my conversation with Yvette Jackson ran long. And look, I'm not complaining about that. She is, as you heard, absolutely brilliant. So, But I want to talk just a little bit here about how nonverbal cues can provide formative evidence. We all know there is more to a message than the words of that message. If you've ever had a significant other utter the words, I'm fine, and you knew they were not fine, then you know the power of nonverbal cues. You know the power of paralanguage. Paralanguage, you know, body language, gestures, tone, pitch. Those are all examples of paralinguistic patterns, and they can communicate a ton about where a learner is along their learning continuum. Now, Cassandra, Nicole, and I write a lot about this in the book Instructional Agility, when we are talking about observation and how nonverbal cues can also be valuable information in being instructionally agile. Any positive statement can become negative. It can become a snarky comment with paralanguage. Just think about the statement, I love your shoes, right? That sounds positive, but try it this way. <laughs> I love your shoes. You see, immediately turns negative. The words say that I love your shoes, but it doesn't sound like it at all. So it's important not just to examine what students say or what they do, but how they say it and how they do it. Attention to nonverbal cues can be particularly helpful when you're engineering conversations, right? As you circulate and you listen to what students are saying, pay attention to how they're saying it. You can also observe a group, you know, from a distance and get a sense of how that conversation is going, even if you're not listening to them. You look at their body language. Are they leaning into the conversation? Are they leaning away from one another? What's the body language telling you? Now, in many ways, of course, remote learning, Zoom, Teams, et cetera, that's made that a lot tougher. There's no question, um, especially in cases where you know cameras were off and all of that. So we're not talking about something that's a requirement here. We're just talking about an enhancement, more information that allows you to make an instructional maneuver. But even when you're on Zoom or Teams or some or Google or whatever platform you happen to be using, pay attention to word choice. You know, I know this blurs the line a little bit between verbal and nonverbal communication, but there are clues in the words that that students choose when you're asking them to say respond to an open-ended question. 
emojis as well can be kind of insightful as to how students are feeling at that moment. They, they tend to be more explicit and more obvious, but again, think about making inferences from the choices that, that students make. The point is really that, you know, only somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to 10% of any message comes from the actual words of the message. So even without verbal confirmation one way or the other, we can still know a lot about what we had planned to do instructionally and whether or not a maneuver is going to be necessary. Now, this, of course, does require that we get to know our learners a little more intimately, right? We, we have to build a relationship with them, at the very least, as learners. We have to know them as learners, which means we need to pay attention to how they learn. All teachers pay attention. I know that. But what I mean is, pay attention to what you are paying attention to. Everything. Absolutely everything students say and do, including paralanguage, is information we can use to either confirm that what we have planned for the next 10, 15, 20 minutes is what we should be doing, or whether we need to make an adjustment. So my challenge to you this week is to ramp up your attention to the nonverbal cues of your students and try to use that information to decide whether an instructional maneuver is necessary. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to and see how that information can enhance your ability to be a learner-responsive teacher. Okay, as we close, just a reminder about the Achieve Institute, the institute focusing on promising practices in instruction, assessment, and grading. That's going to be this coming August 16th through 18th. It's a virtual event featuring myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. So solutiontree.com website for details about that. There's also a link in the show notes to get you there. Uh, remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. Follow me on Twitter as well, at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. And don't forget about the YouTube channel as well. Uh, Peter DeWitt's interview is uh, dropping this week, so uh, check that out, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have uh, for the podcast to TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Jennifer Abrams. Uh, we're going to dig into how we navigate difficult conversations. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. And also next week, I'm going to have a special announcement regarding the podcast. So tune in for that as well. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, please spread the word about the podcast on social media or to your friends and colleagues. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 